Susan said to me specifically that Bob killed Kathy. I said, how do you know? She said, he told me. And when you went to the memorial service, did you run into Nick Shaven there? I did. He was extremely agitated. Uh, it's hard for me to say. Hey, Nick, can, can you tell me, is it because of your loyalty to Bob? You said that Bob Durst was your best friend. Is that correct? Yes. I couldn't believe that he was capable of hands-on violence against someone at that extreme. I uh, was one of the wedding guests, and so was Bobby, and Susan asked him if he would drive me to the wedding. It was really awkward and stilted. He absolutely wouldn't talk to me. I thought he was terribly rude and was not interested in expending any energy at all and being polite to a person he found unimportant. Had you ever known Mr. Durst previously to mention to you that he had Asperger's? No. I said, you wanted to talk about Susan. And Bob said, I had to. It was her or me, I had no choice. Welcome back to season two of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. This week, the prosecution is expected to conclude their case against Robert Durst for the murder of Susan Berman. Today, we'd like to return our focus to Susan Berman, whose life we explored in depth at the start of the season, and whose violent death was a traumatic blow to her many loyal friends. Loyalty is a theme that has come up throughout this trial. We've covered the extreme lengths that Robert Durst's friends have gone to protect him during this trial, during his 2003 trial in Galveston, and in 1982, when, according to the prosecution in this case, Durst's best friend, Susan Berman, helped Durst cover up Durst's murder of his wife, Kathy, by, among other things, placing a call as Kathy to the dean of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. In this episode, we'll explore both the extreme intensity and the ultimate fragility of that loyalty in the worlds of Robert Durst and Susan Berman. That's coming up after the break. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. By all accounts, Susan Berman was a complicated individual. Well, she was an extremely complex person. She was difficult. She was really smart. She was. She could be a lot of fun, uh, but she was. Um, she wasn't easy. She was a very twisty and turny kind of friend. Um, she was um, someone who could call and be terribly upset, and you would have to take care of her. But then she would take care of you sometime. That was Julie Smith, a writer and close friend of Susan's. She was also the executor of Susan's will. 
The jury watched her pre-recorded video testimony last week. She was questioned by Deputy DA John Lewin. How loyal a friend was Susan? She would, I don't know if she would die for you, but just about everything else. She was as loyal a friend as she can get. But does Susan Bergman know, would she lie to protect a close friend? Absolutely. I'm pretty sure she did. The prosecution alleges that, as a result of the tight bond between Robert Durst and Susan Berman, Berman placed a call to the dean of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, pretending to be Kathy Durst, the morning after her disappearance. Well, in the context of many, many conversations where we had made the analogy of she was like Gladys to Davy, in terms of being needed by him and helping him, she once told me that she called Albert Einstein Medical Center for him and, and said she was Kathy. That was Linda Obst, testifying back in 2017. Obst was referring to Berman's mother, Gladys, and her loyal devotion to Susan's gangster father, Davy Berman. Obst went on to explain that she didn't understand the significance of that phone call until years later. Did you watch the Jeans episode where they talked about the call to Albert Einstein Medical School. Yes. And can you tell me, when you watched that episode, can you tell me what happened? Yes. Um, that was a very disturbing episode to me because that was the point at which I realized that people did not know that she called the Albert Einstein Medical Center and that I immediately realized upon seeing that episode that I knew this fact. I was struck. Um, my heart started racing. According to the prosecution, this phone call was the original sin in this case. Susan, they say, performed what she thought was an act of profound loyalty on behalf of her best friend and helped Durst cover up his wife's murder. And yet, over the years, as many of Susan's friends have testified, and as we have reported in earlier episodes, Susan would frequently betray the secret by telling her friends bits and pieces of what she had done for Durst. In these final weeks of Durst's Los Angeles trial, the prosecution has sought to establish Susan's psychological and financial state, particularly as it would have been perceived by Robert Durst himself. Among those who testified on the subject was Berman's friend Julie Smith, who averred that, toward the end of her life, Susan's financial situation was dire. Were you aware that Susan came upon hard times financially? Absolutely. That, that actually lasted many years. When you first met her, is it fair to say that, financially speaking, uh, Susan uh, appeared to have plenty of money? She was loaded. She, <laughs> yeah, she had a lot of, she had money from inheritance, she was working, and later she sold, uh, and, and she had sold some books, but later she sold uh, film rights to the book, so she had a lot of money. And, and is it fair to say that at a certain point in time in your relationship, that situation switched, and over time she became more and more financially desperate? That is quite fair to say. I mean, there were times when she would talk about whether she had enough money to buy food or not. Several weeks ago, the jury heard from David Eisenman, Susan's hairdresser and close confidant, who testified, under direct examination by Deputy DA Habib Balian, 
that toward the end of her life, Susan was so financially strapped that she had not paid him in several years. Financially, was she able to pay for her styling and her haircut? There came a point where she could not pay me, but I told her not to worry that when she got up on her feet and was working again, she could start paying me again. How uh, long of a period approximately was it where you were... Not being paid? Yeah. I'm sure. Do you remember? Well, it was a few years. Eisenman also said that in the final months, Susan expressed hope that there was light at the end of the tunnel for her. Berman told him that she believed that Robert Durst would not hesitate to come to her aid. Did Susan, uh, during these discussions, ever discuss with you a man named Robert Durst, or maybe she referred to him as Bobby? Yes. Um, in particular, the early portion of you knowing Susan Berman. How would she speak about him? In what terms? I would say in, in glowing terms. He yeah. was almost godlike. They'd been friends for such a long time, and uh, she was very close to him, and uh, uh, almost like a marriage of sort, you know, best friends. In the point in time from when you start cutting her hair, styling her hair, up until that last year, when things are going smooth for her financially, did she talk to you about her friend Bobby or Robert Durst with respect to any financial assistance he was providing her? Yes. What would she say? What kinds of things would she say during that period of time? She would say, um, he's very good to me. She gave me the impression that he would always take care of her. Did she at some point tell you he's always going to take care of me? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Here's how Julie Smith remembers it. Were you aware if she had borrowed money from Bobby Durst? Yes, I was. And had you ever discussed that with her? Yes, uh, it, it came in the context of uh, she would be so worried about uh, how she would get money. And, and then uh, I, I can't really recall whether he offered or whether she asked, but she certainly talked to him about the same things and was very open about that. And he did lend her money on two occasions that I knew of. Did she tell you subsequent to that conversation that in fact, Bobby Durst had given her $25,000? She did. But then, in the very last weeks before Berman's death, Eisenman noted a more desperate tone in Berman's voice about money and her friend, Bob. When's the last time you saw her, do you remember? Uh, I was supposed to see her in like two days from when I found out she was murdered. Prior to that, I was probably five weeks. Do you remember having discussions with her at that last time you, you saw her about her financial situation? Yes. Did you notice any change in the way she spoke about Bobby and how his generosity towards her at that point in time was there a change in her attitude towards Bobby? Yes. She was becoming more desperate in that she couldn't get in touch with him. She uh, was having a very bad time financially, and she um, was expecting a check from him, and it wasn't showing up. And uh, she wanted to pay me, of course. I think she was embarrassed because, you know, everybody has pride. But she became more and more distressed. You remember her telling you that the money wasn't coming fast enough from Bobby? Yeah. 
What was her demeanor like? Was it normal? She, was it different? The laughs were gone. I mean, she, I could tell she was under a lot of stress, and um, she was very upset, and she didn't know where she was going to get her rent money, uh, things like that. Did you say the laughs were gone? Yes. We always had a, a good relationship and a lot of, you know, fun conversations. But as it got toward the end of her time, she was depressed and anxiety. Did Susan tell you in this discussion about not getting this money and this check what she was afraid was going to happen to her? She referred to herself as destitute and she was afraid of becoming a street person. Crucially, the prosecution alleges Susan's desperation in late 2000 led her to link two subjects in her conversations with her friend Robert Durst, her acute need for financial assistance and the revived investigation that New York authorities were initiating into the 1982 disappearance of Durst's wife, Kathy. Simultaneously, Susan asked Bob for another loan, and she told him that the authorities wanted to speak to her about Kathy's case. Meanwhile, Durst so feared the New York investigation that he went into hiding in Galveston, Texas, where he rented an apartment as a mute woman named Dorothy Siner. While Durst probably did not know that Berman had already disclosed what she had done for him to a number of her friends, he certainly knew that Susan liked to talk, and, according to the prosecution, he immediately understood Susan's severe financial distress and her implication that she would be talking to the police as a threat. In reality, however, Berman's intentions may have been more benign than Durst understood them to be. Although Susan Berman was on the radar of investigators, they had never actually reached out to her. Last week, the jury heard from Joseph Becerra, the New York State Police investigator who reopened the case of Kathy's disappearance in November of 1999. Under direct examination, Deputy DA Habib Balian asked him about any contact he had with Susan Berman. At the time that you were, you began this investigation in 1999, had you ever heard the name Susan Berman before? Prior to the opening of the investigation? Yes. No. At some point during your investigation, did you hear her name? Yes, I did. Mostly friends of Kathy's who said that she was very close with Bob Durst and that she would, she should be someone that we definitely interview because they were extremely close at the time of Kathy's disappearance. Did you plan on interviewing Susan Berman? I did. When were you planning on speaking to Susan Berman? Probably at some point going into the new year. Um, there wasn't a definitive date set at that point. Had you ever reached out to Susan Berman to let her know you wanted to speak with her? No, I did not. Were you the lead investigator on the case? I was. Is there anyone else who would have potentially interviewed witnesses without talking to you? No, and I, I had Susan Berman's contact information and all that. Okay, you had actually obtained her contact information? Yes. And had you shared it with anybody yet? No. To this date, have you ever spoken to Susan Berman? No. You were aware of a point in time when she was murdered, right? Yes, I was. Prior to that date, had you ever spoken to any law enforcement officer in California about speaking to Susan Berman? No, I did not. And prior to her murder, had you reached out to her either directly or indirectly at all? No, I did not. Berman's intention in linking the investigation and her financial distress may simply have been to remind Bob of how loyal she had been to him over the years. But according to prosecutors, that is not how Robert Durst interpreted it. The foundation of the people's case is that when Robert Durst perceives that he is being backed into a corner, he reacts ruthlessly. 
Bob understood Susan's simultaneous entreaty for cash and her mention that the police wanted to talk to her as a trap of existential proportions. And so Bob, they say, decided to act with extreme prejudice. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. For most of their 30-plus year friendship, Robert Durst was, by all accounts, a loyal and devoted friend to Susan Berman. But often, that devotion did not extend to Susan's friends. Here's how Julie Smith described a car ride with Durst to Susan's wedding. I uh, was one of the wedding guests, and so was Bobby, and Susan asked him if he would drive me to the wedding, and he did. And can you describe, to the best of your memory, what was that interaction like? It was really awkward and stilted. Um, He and I were alone in the car together, and he absolutely wouldn't talk to me. You know, I would try to be pleasant and friendly, and he did not respond. Now, did you end up, either before or after that, observe Mr. Durst in situations where he was able to interact with individuals? Oh, sure, yeah. And in the interaction you had with him in the car, how did you take that interaction? I thought he was terribly rude and was not interested in expending any energy at all and being polite to a person he found unimportant. I thought he was certainly able to interact and just couldn't be bothered. After Susan's death, Julie Smith received information that shed new light on the foundation of the bond of loyalty and trust between Robert Durst and Susan Berman. And when you went to the memorial service, did you run into Nick Shaven there? I did. He was extremely agitated. Um, He was not somebody that I knew very well, and he seemed to seek me out, and he wanted to ask me if Susan ever told me that she knew Bobby killed Kathy, and she had not. And Nick was extremely wound up and very, very agitated and seemed to be going through something. And he said that she had told him that. While Julie had spoken to Susan Berman about Kathy Durst's disappearance years earlier, Susan had not divulged this piece of information to her. How did you find out that Kathy Durst had disappeared? It was well after the fact, and it was on that trip um, when I took Susan to New York, I believe, and she told me about it. When she told me about her friend Bobby, she said that his wife had disappeared. It was a pretty amazing thing to hear. Um, And I asked her um, if she thought he killed her, and she said, absolutely not. I don't think that. And then she said, as, as if it was a warning, she said, Julie, promise me this. You can't ever write about this. Never write about this. Let me ask you, has she ever said that to you about any other issue or event in the years you knew her? No. 
And during this conversation you had with her, did she tell you that um, she made clear to you that she did not ever want to talk to me about anything that had to do with Bobby and Kathy? During that conversation? I don't believe during that conversation she did. But any time that I tried to bring it up, she would just veer off in another direction. She wouldn't talk about it at all. Although the two were very close, Julie speculated as to why Susan never revealed the secret to her. Would you expect, given the nature of your relationship, that she would have admitted that to you? She would not have admitted that to me. She would have withheld that from me. And why do you base that on, ma'am? I think that she knew me well enough to know that I would have a great deal of judgment about that and that I would feel it was something I had to report to the police. Nick Chavin, the man who approached Julie Smith at Susan's memorial, is one of the key witnesses in the prosecution's case against Robert Durst, and his testimony not only offers specific insights into the nature of the loyal bond between Susan and Bob, but also a crucial admission from Robert Durst regarding the limits of that loyalty. Due to an 11th hour stipulation, Nick Chavin did not return to the courtroom last week. Instead, the jury watched his pre-recorded video testimony, in which he was questioned by John Lewin. He testified to the conversation where he originally heard from Susan about Durst's alleged involvement in Kathy's death. Susan said to me specifically that Bob killed Kathy, and I said, no, he didn't, and she said, yes, he did, and we argued about that, and she said, we love both of them, Kathy's gone, we love Bob, we need to protect him. Bob killed Kathy. I said, how do you know? She said, he told me. How many times did you and Susan have such a conversation? Approximately half a dozen times. We argue on a consistent basis over that. When you would argue about it, does that mean that when she originally told you, you didn't believe her? That's correct. Eliciting this statement from Nick Chavin was not easy for the prosecution. At first, he was reluctant to speak with investigators, let alone to testify, because at one time he was extremely close friends with both Susan Berman and Robert Durst. Here's how Julie Smith described their friendship. And did you actually have the opportunity to see Bobby Durst, Susan Berman, and Nick Chavin interacting together? Yes. Uh, the four of us were together once, and the three of them were just having a wonderful time uh, laughing and joking and obviously knew each other very well. It kind of left me out of it. Um, but they were uh, clearly very good friends and having super time. Nick Chavin had a slightly different take on the trio's dynamic. You said that Bob Durst was your best friend. Is that correct? Yes. Do you believe that you were Bob's best friend? Possibly with just with the exception of Susan Berman, I thought I was. Did you believe that Susan was closer to Bob than you were? Yes. In the beginning of his recorded testimony, Nick Chavin described the good times they had together, including going on double dates in the 1970s after Bob was married to Kathy. What kind of stuff would you and, and Mr. Durst do together? We went out socially. We, we had called Boys Night Out, where we'd uh, go out and go to nightclubs and, and bars. And was the pursuit of female companionship part of what you and Mr. Durst would do? 
Yes, to an extent, yes. And by this point, are you separated, divorced? What's your status? We didn't get, uh, my status was married but separated. And what was Mr. Durst's status? Married, I believe, yeah. Did Mr. Durst ever explain to you, or did you ever ask anything about how his marriage to Kathy affected his pursuit of women at bars? There were times when we would double date where Bob would go out with Kathy and I'd go out with a female friend of mine, just there were several. And there were times when we would each go out with different women and he wasn't with Kathy. So we double dated sometimes with two women that were new to us and so, or relatively new and sometimes where I had a girlfriend, sort of temporary girlfriend, and Bob went out with his wife. Did you ever have a discussion with him about why he was out dating other women when he was married? Yes, but not that directly. Bob described his marriage as open, open meaning dating other women. His closeness with Durst would certainly account for his unwillingness to accept the possibility that Robert Durst was involved in his wife's disappearance. After the deaths of Morris Black and Susan Berman, however, Nick Chavin was forced to reevaluate this friendship. Mr. Chavin, can you please describe your level of shock when you learned that Robert Durst had dismembered Morris Black's body with his hands and tools. Extreme shock. Disbelief. If, if someone were to have told you that that had happened without an admission by Mr. Durst that he had done it, would you ever have believed that the Robert Durst you knew could have done such a thing? Of course not. Did the situation with Susan Berman being murdered and then shortly thereafter Morris Black being killed and then admittedly dismembered by Mr. Durst, did that affect your view of what Susan had originally told you about Bob's involvement in Kathy's very much so. One of the primary foundations of my belief that Bob was not responsible for Kathy's disappearance or what happened to Susan was that I couldn't believe that he was capable of hands-on violence against someone at that extreme. But hereafter, admitting that he was, it's like taking the gloves off. All, all things are possible now. Even at this stage, however, Nick Chavin expressed a willingness to help and even lie for his friend. Here's how he reacted when Robert Durst called him from jail. I'm gonna go fast forward now to the point where Bob Durst called you from the Galveston jail. Do you recall discussing that yes. previously? That's the first time you indicated you had spoken to him by your memory in a number of years, is that right? Correct. And what, if anything, when he called you, what did he say or ask you to do? He asked me to take the call from a psychiatrist that had been, I guess, I don't know what the word is, that he'd been examined by. And he was coaching me 
as to what he would like me to talk about and discuss. We were both aware of the fact that the call was being listened to by the authorities. So his language was, and it, because we knew each other well that he could do this, he said, remember how I had that Asperger's difficulty when I was uh, younger? And uh, I said, yes, no, to the best of my knowledge, I knew, knew of no such thing, but I was saying yes because we were being listened to. So you believed on this phone call, when Mr. was called from jail, you believed when you took the call that it was being monitored? Yes, he had told me it was. He then went through a series of psychological disorders, emphasizing that I already knew about these and would I explain them in more detail to the psychiatrist. Now, this was, all of these were news to me and I was more than willing to do that. Let me stop you, had you ever known Mr. Durst previously to mention to you that he had Asperger's? No. After hearing evidence from many of Robert Durst's close friends, including Emily Altman, Stuart Altman, Gene Clark, Susan Giordano, and Doug Oliver, the jury may have begun to wonder if there is simply nothing that would change the minds of those in Robert Durst's orbit of loyalty. However, Nick Chavin, it turns out, is different. Over the course of the six-hour video of Chavin's testimony, the prosecution played recordings of a number of phone calls that they had had with Nick Chavin prior to his 2017 video testimony. Over the course of these phone calls, the jury could practically hear Chavin's loyalty to his friend Bob slipping away. Okay, so tell me, so what is your memory about what Susan said about um, Bob having killed Kathy? Can, hey, Nick, can, can you tell me, is it because of your loyalty to Bob? Um, I mean, it's understandable. You can be honest about it. We're just trying to figure I, out what... I mean, it is... Is, yeah. is it because is it you guys are still friends, or...? I love Susan, because she's a dear, dear friend. And yeah. the same with Bob, so this well, thing with your, your, your best friend killing your other best friend. Ultimately, say the prosecutors, Chavin's loyalty to Susan and to the truth won out. After three months and dozens of witnesses, the jury finally heard testimony that, in fact, not only was there a limit to Robert Durst's loyalty to his friends, that limit was ultimately ruthless and lethal. Toward the end of Nick Chavin's testimony, he was asked about a dinner he had with Durst in 2014. At a certain point in time, sometime in late 2014, did you have a dinner with Robert Durst? Yes. Leading up to this dinner, did you and Mr. Durst have at least one discussion about what the purpose was going to be for this dinner? Yes. Bob said, first he, he, he changed the place of where we would eat. And then he said he wanted to have dinner with me. He wanted to talk to me about Kathy and Susan. Did he explain to you what that was about? No. Based on your relations with him and what you knew, what did you believe at that time his comment meant? I believed that the only thing it could be about would be the unanswered questions about whether he 
was responsible for the disappearance and the death of Susan Brown. By this point in time, were you starting to suspect that Mr. Durst was involved with not only his wife's disappearance, which you testified to previously, but for Susan's death as well? Yes. When you went to dinner that night, did the subject of Kathy and Susan come up? At the dinner itself, we're saying no. And were you waiting for that subject to come up? Yes. Well, at least once I was, and then I forgot. I want you to describe what happened at the end of that dinner. The dinner concluded, and it was then that I as we got up to leave, I realized that we hadn't discussed the two things that he had mentioned, Kathy and Susan. I felt kind of weird that I didn't bring it up. Uh, we walked out the door. This is hard. We walked out the door, and on the sidewalk, I said, you wanted to talk about Susan? And Bob said, I had to. It was her or me. I had no choice. And then he turned to walk away and I said, you wanted to talk about Kathy? And he just kept walking away. Nothing more was said. I had to. It was her or me. I had no choice. In a case with very little physical evidence, for example, there are no fingerprints, no DNA, nor is there a murder weapon, this testimony is crucial to the prosecution's case. Had prosecutors not patiently waited for Nick Chavin to come around, they might not have been able to get this admission. Much like Susan in late 2000, outside pressure put a strain on Nick Chavin's loyalty to Robert Durst. I feel, I feel like there's two scales. One is a betrayal of Bob Durst and the others betrayal of Susan Berman. I feel that the betrayal I had felt of Susan Berman has lightened considerably and I have the weight of, of <coughs> feeling grief and sadness about Bob. Not betrayal but grief and sadness. Ultimately, this is how Nick Chavin described his change of heart. In the time period that it took you to divulge all the information that you knew, did you consider what you would have felt like had a trial occurred and you not have provided the information that you had? Yes, I had. I felt, sorry about the language, that I was dishonoring Susan Berman's memory and my friendship with her. To discuss these developments, we're joined by reporter Charlie Bagley, who's covering this case for The New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Charlie, thanks for being with us again. Hey, it's good to be here. So, Charlie, what do you know about the source of Nick Chavin's longtime loyalty and devoted friendship to Robert Durst? Well, I I got to know Nick very early in, in my writing on this subject. Uh, in 2000, I interviewed him, and Nick was pretty open, and I... I over the last 20 years, seen the evolution of his thinking. In the very beginning, Nick told me, well, you got to talk to Susie. Susie told me Bob did it. 
and my jaw dropped. But in the next breath, he says, but Susie was a liar. I didn't believe her. And he would emphasize how much Bob was not capable of violence. At one time, he told me that Bob didn't know which end of the gun a bullet came out of. As it turns out, he was wrong on that count. We've heard from a number of Robert Durst's close friends now, and so many of them have gotten up on the stand and they didn't give an inch. I'm thinking specifically of when John Lewin asked Emily Altman if having dismembered a man would take him out of consideration to be her child's godfather. It seemed like for so many of these people, they've taken the stand and nothing would sway their loyalty to Robert Durst. And now all of a sudden, Nick Chavin is the the only one we've seen who's really different. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about why you think that is. Sure. I, well, I think it was different for him than for Doug Oliver, because he considered Susan Berman one of his closest friends, and he considered Bob one of his closest friends. So he was tortured by his loyalty to these two different people. And Ultimately, as he said in court, he just could not dishonor Susan's memory by keeping his mouth shut. Brittany, tell me your impressions of Julie Smith's testimony. I thought she spoke so eloquently about Susan. And even though a number of people have described her as a very multifaceted person, we got this really textured impression of what she would have been like. But I think the thing that really stuck out to me the most was that you're driving in a car with somebody that you later find out is allegedly a murderer of three people. And your chief concern was, were you pleasant? Did you try your best to make conversation? I thought that sounded pretty relatable to me. Charlie, there was a hearing last week with a so-called medical expert who testified on behalf of the defense team's motion that Robert Durst is of diminished capacity and is unable to properly participate in his representation in this trial. We did a special bonus episode at the end of last week on that hearing, and today the judge gave his decision on that motion. We're going to play for our listeners a little piece of Judge Wyndham announcing that decision. In the legal context, we use a different paradigm from what a doctor in a purely medical context would describe as ideal treatment for a chronically ill individual. Dr. Klein not only advises that Mr. Durst should not testify, but he should not be on trial and he should not even be in jail. Dr. Klein has not observed Mr. Durst in the courtroom. Mr. Durst is hardly somnolent. His attention drifts only occasionally during the more tedious parts of the proceedings when anyone could be excused for a lack of focus. Indeed, Mr. Durst is a quite active participant. He dresses for court, he listens, He writes notes, he talks to his lawyers, he waves to the friendly witnesses and acquaintances in the audience. He has endured 11 weeks of trial, but remains mentally present. Though occasionally he has been incontinent, the doctor embellishes by describing a situation he has not even observed, as if Mr. Durst every day were sitting in a pool of urine and feces. That's just false 
and stating this falsehood reveals the witness's bias. Dr. Klein's reports are not objective, but works of advocacy. He even invokes the Holocaust as if this prosecution were a war crime. The histrionics are contradicted by the medical records, which in fact support his treating physician's determination that Mr. Durst is fit to come to court. While Dr. Klein suggested with a delay Mr. Durst's overall health will improve, he never testified that Mr. Durst would regain the supposed loss of cognition. Thus, there's no basis for delay. Finally, Dr. Klein writes that he will not comment on the legal context of Mr. Durst's situation, quote, regardless of the legal issues of which I will not and should not comment upon, end quote. But this is the most important circumstance. Contrary to Dr. Klein's insinuations, there is zero evidence of mental incompetency. First, the witness is not a psychiatrist or psychologist. He is a kidney specialist and disproportionately paid. Second, Dr. Klein's testimony that Mr. Durst was examined by a psychiatrist in the jail does not raise the inference of mental disorder. In fact, the psychiatrist's report on May 30th, 2021 of no evidence of mental illness despite the odd behavior dispels any such inference. Third, Courts Exhibit 15 shows that the jail nurses examine and record his psychological functioning daily and record his and, and that his mental health is perfectly sound. It is important to consider Dr. Klein's nomenclature. Dr. Klein uses the term diminished capacity, which is not a useful term in modern California criminal law. It's a term used to describe a defense that was abolished in California about 30 years ago and does not have any legal meaning with regard to competency. The doctor's imprecision reduces his credibility. He's better on the kidney issues. Motion denied. I think if you look at Bob in the courtroom, you're looking at a man that's sitting in a wheelchair. He looks very frail and he's got big hearing aids. You don't need to know any more. This is a man with a, a lot of uh, medical issues. And the doctor gave us a long litany of problems using uh, uh, what I can only call hyperbolic language. Yet that testimony flew in the face of what we can all see. We see Bob get up out of his wheelchair and stand when the judge enters the courtroom. We see Bob all day long writing notes to his lawyers, suggesting lines of questioning. He seems to be more aware of his situation in the trial than maybe some of his lawyers. One last thing before we go. Charlie, I gather over the weekend, even though Robert Durst's attorneys have said repeatedly that Durst is going to testify, there was some last-minute debate among the defense team about whether he should, in fact, testify. What can you tell us about that? Well, I did get uh, the impression over the weekend that there was quite a bit of debate, and it was touch and go. At one point, it sounded like Bob would not take the stand, and they would just present one witness and rest, and then I suppose they were going to depend on the brilliance of their summation.
But in the end, as I understand it, Bob insisted that he wanted to take the stand, that he wanted to tell his story. Well, I have to say that the surest sign that Robert Durst is of diminished capacity to me is if he, in fact, decides not to take the witness stand. Because the Robert Durst that we all know is the guy who will, as Brittany once said, take that stand even if he's a brain in a jar. (laughs) With that, Charlie, thanks again for being with us. Thank you. And we'll look forward to what promises to be quite an eventful week ahead. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written and edited by yours truly, Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Alexis Bartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.